All right, I'm here with, uh, I don't know, I hate intros, man. <laughs> All right. I didn't know we were starting yet. All right, audio is good. All right, I've got a special treat for everyone here on Everything EOS. There's been a lot of updates since the last time uh, Pete's been on the show here. Um, and if you guys don't know Pete, Pete is the author and instructor of our Everything EOS, EOS IO developer courses, which as of this morning, we have 462 total enrollees and you've got a 4.48 average rating. So that's awesome, man. Uh, I obviously talk to you on a daily basis because of liquid apps and a lot of other things, but um, you, you've been doing a lot of other stuff too, as far as um, diving into some new tools that are coming out lately. And you, you're, you've been telling me about this uh, EO Studio web for a while now, and you wanted to yeah, demo for it. Sure. For sure, the EOS developer courses really introduced EOS Studio to a lot of people. And uh, earlier, before even the course launched, we launched the EOS Studio like walkthrough mm -hmm. as a preview of the course, and people got excited about that. Well, now I'm going to share my screen here. Now EOS Studio is coming out with a web version. Uh, one of the reasons that this is here we go. Uh, one of the reasons this is so great. I wish I could go to the home screen. There we are. One of the reasons this is so great is it was difficult for some people to get set up. It was pretty demanding on your system. You had to have eight gigabytes of RAM. You had to have Windows 10. You had to get Docker all set up. Uh, you had to run everything locally. Sometimes maybe you'd corrupt your database locally and you'd have trouble handling that. You know, And EOS Studio has come out with this web version, which I think is really great. There's a cloud test net uh, wow. you can work on. There's a uh, You can launch right on Jungle or Kylin or even mainnet from the cloud. You develop your contracts, test them, deploy them on the cloud. Uh, look at this. We got our Everything yeah. Developer Courses right here uh, linked. There's tutorials, and uh, you can load up some system contracts. We're going to have our tutorial contracts here as well under the popular contracts. And, uh, oh, apparently I have to log in. 927251, verify. Um, all right, I guess we can just resume from here. So I'm going to authorize with GitHub, Obsidian Labs, who created EOS Studio. And uh, here we go. You can see we got projects here uh, that I can start up. I could say I want a new project. We're going to call it Everything EOS. Make it. And uh, it generates a little bit of uh, stuff for us. We've got our contract here that we can customize and our header files. We can uh, build and deploy them right here. We can edit settings. You know, it's great. It's just, it's just EOS Studio. Uh, this like is nice. on the web, cloud, that you can use it on anything. Uh, you could use it on an iPad for all I know. And uh, you can run actions, you know, with contracts. This is in the cloud uh, net, but you could also do it on mainnet. It's great. So I'm really excited about the web version of EOS Studio. It really hits some of the pain points that people have been feeling about having to go out and get a Mac or a, a Windows 10 computer with 8 gigs of RAM. You know, there's people that want to build applications. They don't have access to those hardware resources yet. And now you can have contracts you're developing on the cloud. I loved cloud IDEs. I used to use one called Cloud9. Uh, I think they got mm -hmm. absorbed by Amazon or someone. But I used to love that because I wouldn't have to install the packages and, like, Kill, kill my hard drive and just my big thing is I, I like to mess with stuff, use it, and then I don't use it again. So whenever we're talking uh, APKs and stuff like that, I'll install these huge files on my computer and then forget about them. And then I, I wonder why I'm uh, running out of hard drive space. 
so so we th- we talked about all the good things. Uh, this is amazing. Uh, it's going to really help onboard people. But what are what are the downsides to this? Like, what could you do on the desktop version that you cannot do on, on a cloud IDE, for example? You could do certain things. I don't know what the powers are of this to because it's so to new. work with the network. Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't do custom things with the cloud local testnet. That's a really complicated <laughs> phrase, but like you have a, a local testnet on your computer that you're running, Node EOS, mm-hmm. when you're using EOS Studio, and you can do things with it. You can change things. You can start over again. You can't really do that with the cloud, as far as I can see. So we wanted to show that to everyone. That released on June 24th. So let's get back to the developer courses. So I, I kind of hyped up the numbers there because these are huge. 462 total enrollees. Uh, there, there's been a, a decent amount of graduates so far who I saw had 100% completion. What has been the most fulfilling thing for you? Because I read these review comments that you get and they're just like amazing because a lot of people are like saying you're such a good instructor and you, you, you teach in a good way. But then you get some people that uh, offer some criticism and stuff. But for, for you, what has been the most uh, fulfilling thing or the best thing uh, about doing these? Uh, it's really about learning. And this is my first video course, you know, and I came in knowing that I could do it. But, you know, there's still those details that you just don't anticipate. You know, you don't know you're going to you record 30 videos or whatever. And then you think, oh, wait a minute, I should have done this instead. And you're not going to go back and change all those things. Uh, right. It's just we had to get something out there quickly that people could use and that they could learn from. But I've definitely been hearing the feedback. Some of the feedback has been that the course doesn't include certain things like deploying that we don't deploy to testnet. We don't deploy to, uh, you know, mainnet especially. And I was never intended to do that because of RAM costs and such. But uh, we're going to be deploying to testnet and mainnet in the next course. And we're gonna be doing a lot of other things that were mentioned like test-driven development. And uh, we're gonna be learning some new technologies uh, or ID, uh, which lets you log in with Facebook or an email address or a phone number or uh, LinkedIn, GitHub. They have this list of dozens and dozens of social logins. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and or also with, with EOS keys, you know, you can log in with your ledger. We're going to be working on Scatter.js. Really exciting stuff. And then we're also going to be looking at DAP network services. Oh, yeah. Uh, things like VRAM and Liquid Oracle. So you can actually get information from the internet into your contract, which empowers just a huge number of use cases. And then uh, Liquid Accounts and Cron scheduled tasks where you can run timers and things and have things trigger reliably. These things that aren't really things we can do on native EOS are enabled by the DAP network, and we're going to be learning how to do those as well. So you're building on top of uh, what you already taught everyone. So basically, the first course, the intention of that was to build a foundation of knowledge to just get started on EOSIO. And once someone has that foundation, then you could start building on top of that. And that's kind of what, what the focus of this is. How, how would you describe the difference well, between this and your, your introductory course? Yeah, it's pretty major, actually. One of the limitations of the first course is that it was connected to Elemental Battles. Now, Elemental Battles is a great tutorial, but uh, maybe 40% of it, that's just a, a rough guess, is kind of extraneous stuff, you know, like, oh, well, now we're going to have to learn how, we're going to have to do this this grunt work in React just to make the game look like we want it to make. And you're not really learning anything new because you're just doing grunt work. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's practice, arguably, and I'm sure people will benefit. But one of the comments uh, that the people have been saying is that there's a lot of, of extra stuff where I didn't feel like I was learning EOS. 
<laughs> and uh, I didn't feel I was learning how to build a DAP. And we're fixing that because we're no longer tied to that Elemental Battles tutorial where we are following the roadmap already laid out for us. But we're we're going to be focusing on the new things, focusing on the EOS things. This isn't going to be something you can come in as a non-developer and then exit with a full DAP mm -hmm. because the, the menial things we're not going to build. Right, the it's just you're going to have to be referred to the previous course or go explore this on your own. Each lesson is going to examine a, a certain aspect, and while we're going to be building it into one big project, like a PvP uh, kind of DAP experience, uh, we're not going to build that entire DAP out video by video, line by line. So there will be videos on ORID, videos on Scatter.js, UAL, videos on using VRAM, videos on Liquid Oracles, videos on all the components we need in a context, yes, but not with those those details in between, you know. So this will be great for coming in and you say, I just want to learn ORID, and then you watch the videos. And you don't have to watch all the videos before if you have some developer experience. You can just watch those videos, walk away saying, now I know how to do ORID. And same with all the other components. That's awesome. Yeah, so it's been amazing seeing how the communities kind of accepted the, the first round of developer courses, which I think we released them like May 1st or something. Um, recently, EOS Arabia, they just did a hackathon. I saw it on Twitter. Did you know about this before it happened? Because I I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they reached out a couple days before, and I, I just didn't have time to do anything you know, uh -huh. active about it at the time. But, it, uh, but I knew it was coming, and it was excited. It was exciting to see it happen so quickly. Yeah, it looks like they did a hackathon, and what they used for their introductory materials for their hackathon participants, where they said you should do this course before you come to the hackathon. And then I, I don't know if they built the elemental battles as part of the hackathon or what. But that's one of the things I've noticed is like the number's huge. We said what is it, four hundred and sixty-two enrollees. Like, how does it feel that you're like the first face that people see when they want to learn ES? It's kind of like a <laughs> is there any pressure there? Uh, I don't know about that. I kind of, I kind of just live in my cave and pretend that the outside world doesn't exist. <laughs> and then, and then al we alternate that with conferences. You know how this is. Mm -hmm. You live in your cave, and then you go out to a conference and you meet hundreds of people, and then you go back to solitude for months. <laughs> that. So let's talk about that for a second. So we're at. Uh, consensus. We're at Blockchain Week in New York City. We're in line to get into the Carbon and Icon event at, at some club in, in New York City. And the guy behind us is like, you're the everything EOS guys. I'm taking your courses right now. <laughs> and then you strike up a conversation. You actually, I think, between that and B1 June and some other stuff you've been to, you've actually met a, a good bit of your students. That, that's probably been pretty cool for you, getting feedback in, in like a conversation setting. Yeah. And the feedback's been great. I mean, people are honest. They're like, look, this this should have been different. And I understand that. Uh, but I'm really thankful that all the people have had the grace to, you know, accept what's great about the course. And, uh, hey, we'll improve for the next time. I, I don't think we'll be uh, spilling anyone's secrets here, but there were actually a good bit of Block 1 employees that talked to us at the B1 June weekend mm -hmm. who have enjoyed the courses. The feedback was awesome there, too. Um, but I, I like this next iteration. So whenever Rob and I and you kind of put our heads together to initiate these developer courses, what we wanted to do was we wanted to create one place that if you had someone that says, I want to learn EOSIO, where do I begin? We wanted to be that one link that you'd give someone. And if this is the only link you have, if you, 
you're limited to only giving them one link, we wanted our link to be that one. And right. I, I think we've accomplished that goal. Um, you showed the demo of EO Studio. Uh, we have a link at the very top for where to learn. Um, WordProof, uh, the WordPress timestamping tool that's actually this weekend, which is last weekend by the time this airs. He's speaking at one of the biggest WordPress conferences in the world and, and kind of showing everyone th this tool that's built on EOSIO. And within that plugin, in WordPress, it says learn EOSIO and it's a link to your courses, your introductory courses. I was wondering, how can we as developers can get started with blockchain? Nice. Um, we teamed up actually with a, a party and they do education in blockchain. So I actually had a slide about it. Yeah, here in the back end, when you download it, we partnered with a party who made a video course with 60 hours of video uh, of, of blockchain development. So when you sign up for uh, the, yeah, or when you install the plugin, you have access to that course for free. Do you want to try that? So that's awesome. Uh, where else have I seen it? On basically everyone's like link lists where it's all, all of the best EOS links were on a lot of those. But I'm excited for, for what you have in store next. So you kind of gave some ideas of what implementations you're going to be deploying. Uh, what kind of time frame do we have on that? Have, have, how, how far are you into it? When can uh, our students and non-students uh, expect for these to be released? Uh, we plan to release it end of July potentially beginning of August. That depends on a few things. It depends, well, frankly, on the technologies. Uh, there are a couple of things where we're going to evaluate, we being me, <laughs> there are a couple of things where I'm going to evaluate, look, they're coming out with a new feature that I really want to introduce. Uh, is, it, is it close enough that we can include it? Is it going to be out by the end of July? Is it coming at the beginning of August? You know, uh, that's those kind of things are, are what going to determine that. I'm but, a, but we can also, if, if it's a little farther out, we'll just update the course as we go. The Elemental Battles course is in the middle of a round of updates as well, mm -hmm. uh, working on some of the code, some of the text, and uh, adding a little bonus at the end for those who have completed it. I'm excited uh, for, obviously, all the Liquid Apps, DAP Network implementations that, mm -hmm. that you mentioned, because we have some really uh, useful and super innovative services that are available and getting getting better each week that we think more people could make use of. And oracles are, are probably one of the biggest ones. Uh, pr predict, Everipedia's prediction market, they actually just put out a, a blog article last week where they kind of talk about how they handle their oracles uh, for their prediction mm -hmm. market. And, and oracles are very important for a prediction market because you need to know the results of an event. Let's use a football game or a baseball game, for example. You need a way to bring the final result score into your smart contract to determine uh, who is correct in these contracts. So what are, what are some other uh, cool projects you've seen utilizing DSP services? And which, which ones are you looking forward to kind of uh, I guess, teaching people about through these tutorials and through just your regular job with Liquid Apps? Yeah, it's we're still early, and I'm going to tell you some projects. Uh, but this is these are very recent developments, you know, very recent releases. We're hustling to get the documentation together to get information out there for everyone. Uh, but there are still some projects. Equilibrium just announced that mm -hmm. they'll be integrating with Liquid Oracles. Uh, Equilibrium obviously needs to know the the price uh, in order to for its for its contract to function. If you're not familiar with Equilibrium, watch Zach's episode on it, which was very recent, right? Yeah, it was like I don't know uh, if you talked about. 
It was like the weekend after uh, B1 June that we recorded it. They uh, right. they had to fly from San Fran to New York City. So instead of that, they flew to Pittsburgh and then drove to New York City and we recorded a podcast. It was fun. Awesome. Uh, that's a grueling drive, though. Anyway, <laughs> the, uh, the, I do it. I do it like every week. Um, what Equilibrium is like a MakerDAO. Uh, it, it's, there's a stable coin element and that's uh, kind of held up by by CDPs, by collateralized positions. So uh, basically, if you post collateral and you borrow some of the stable coin or you get out, you produce some of the stable coin, generate, then the price falls below a certain threshold, your position gets liquidated. And so the contract has to know the price or there, somehow the system has to know the current price or everything would, would fall apart. Right. So using liquid oracles is, to my knowledge, the only way to really have a decentralized, no single point of failure Oracle system where you can get information from the outside world without having to worry with, about the problems of centralization. And there are a bunch of other projects out there that do Oracles, but they all have a, a kind of a centralizing element or they haven't developed their decentralized elements yet. But anyway, um, actually, one of the interesting points is that there was an airdrop of tokens at Tulip. You know, Tulip, the conference yeah. that... I just happened in San Francisco. They dropped some tokens. I think they called them V Tulip because mm-hmm. we used to use V instead of Liquid for for everything Liquid apps. Well, let's uh, let's stop there. Let, let's get this out in the open here, so that thousands of people could get the new yeah, names. Yeah, yeah. So so at Liquid Apps, we had uh, some different naming conventions that have been changed recently. We're still working on getting like the blog material out, but we're going to tell you right now. So what what are, what's some of them that we've changed? So V Airdrops is now Liquid Airdrops. Yep. V accounts is now liquid accounts. Yep. Uh, VRAM is still VRAM for the moment, right? It may be, it may be liquid VRAM or something like that ultimately. Uh, so one of the problems with V as like a VRAM and V accounts is that it made people feel like because they were virtual accounts and virtual RAM that they were somehow off chain, right? I guess we've been preconditioned to think that because of the second layer solutions on like Ethereum, Bitcoin, whatever, right? But all of the technologies that Liquid Apps is bringing to the DAP network are still decentralized and are still on chain. So, like, let's take VRAM as an example, right? Uh, yes, your information is stored on a DSP or on DSPs, right? Because you're using their VRAM. They're storing the information for you, so you don't need expensive mainnet RAM, right? But we don't even want to say store. Because when you, you do the transaction to place things on VRAM, two things happen. Proof of the information is put in state so that you know it's not manipulated. When you call it back, you check it with the proof and you can make sure, hey, the DSP didn't alter my data, right? Mm-hmm. And also the transaction that puts things on VRAM, that's recorded on chain. So even if all DSPs exploded, right, there, mm-hmm. there was a... a I don't know, a solar storm that just fried them all, as long as some EOS nodes survive, mm-hmm. right? DSPs go down, the network collapses, whatever. You're running on VRAM. You only even have one DSP. You don't even have multiples. That one goes down. It's attacked by a virus. It's stolen, whatever. You can still replay the chain and get all your data back because the transactions that put the data there are on the chain, right? The chain is not RAM. All right. Now, more technical people will know this, mm-hmm. but if I can put it this way, uh, I, I explained it this way this way to somebody earlier. I don't know if this explanation works. If it doesn't, bear with me. <laughs> You're on a ship. All right. 
You're you're the captain of the ship, let's say. The ship stops at multiple ports along the journey. It picks up passengers, it drops off passengers. It picks up passengers, it drops off. Things are happening all the time. Cargo's going off. Cargo's getting on. You know, people are going off. People are getting on. People are dying. There's funerals. There's weddings. Whatever. RAM is the current state of the ship. If you look at RAM, you can just see what is on the ship right now. Okay? VRAM's like extra cargo ships, I guess. Right? Mm-hmm. The ship's log, where the captain writes everything that happens, that's the blockchain. RAM isn't the blockchain. So you're recording every change that happens to RAM in the blockchain, in the ship's log. Mm -hmm. And you could, if you had the resources, kind of replay what happened to the ship by going through the ship's log, right, and find out what it was like at a certain point. Well, you could do that with VRAM. Right. If you lose all your information to VRAM, you can replay the chain, and now you have all your information back again. So it's de- it's not compromisable. That's mm-hmm. what I want to say. There's not a new way to attack your app because you're using VRAM. It's just being cached. Mm-hmm. It's just for convenience and speed and efficiency. When you were describing uh, going through like the state history, it reminded me. I read uh, Everipedia 2.0. They put out a blog. They came out, or I don't, I don't know if it's out yet. But they described like it was uh, yesterday. It was yesterday. yesterday. They described the first that about it. <laughs> they'll have like something that you could swipe and like replay uh, a particular article on Everipedia, and and it'll go through all the state updates. So it's like basically watching it like change in front of your eyes of how it's changed from present to like the day the the article was started, and that'd be pretty cool to see. Is just I don't know. It's kind of like time warping the article. Uh, <laughs> if it's anything like Wikipedia, you'll be able to just go to a hot section that's highly debated and swipe, and it'll just go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back. And forth. <laughs> but that that might be fun, man. Especially uh, with, with the elections coming up next year. Um, so I I think it's cool how a lot of these projects that have kind of been working in stealth. Uh, on DAP Network, they're going to kind of be making their, their big announcements and deployment soon, and we'll have some open source code that people could look at it of how it was implemented. One of the, you already mentioned, I think, but the project I'm looking forward to seeing uh, deploy is going to be ORID using liquid accounts on the back end. You want to mm-hmm. kind of describe, you already described what ORID is, and they're also used on Everpedia if you used Everpedia. Basically, abstracts needing to manage your own keys if you want. Uh, you would use a social login, like your LinkedIn, your Twitter, your Facebook, uh, whatever, GitHub. Um, so want to explain like what happens in the background with Liquid Accounts and how it, it solves a major problem with account creation cost. And it, it's a problem with RAM in general, because that's, that's, VRAM's actually gotten a lot better since the launch of DAP Network 2 because of Block 1 uh, tripling the, the cost of RAM. And that in, inherently tripled the cost of account creation also. So I'm excited to see what ORID is about to do, and I think you're a little bit more familiar on it than I am. Um, I might be. I'm probably more familiar with how Liquid Accounts works, but uh, Liquid Accounts is a free account solution that, unlike the other free account solutions out there uh, so far that I'm aware of, doesn't require a side chain and doesn't require custody of keys. Um, the user can have their own keys, and sign transactions, sign actions. And on the main net, those actions are proxied by a single account. Right? So there's all these users that have virtual accounts, but we don't use that term anymore for the reasons I lined out, that have liquid accounts. And they have control of their keys, um, but the there's one proxy account. So that basically it enables 
limitless, nearly free accounts, uh, there are still going to be the VRAM cost for you know involved and such. Which is like uh, but pennies. limitless. <laughs> It's it's very cheap compared to accounts right now, especially after the block one RAM buy. Uh, but we're it's enabling essentially free accounts. There's still going to be a cost, and uh, we're hoping that developers will be able to pick that up uh, for for their users. I, I think uh, one of the most useful things about liquid accounts is and it kind of goes back like a long time ago. We had the scatter guys on a podcast, and they're talking about. Uh, was it called Scatter Bridge that they were building at the time for kind of sharing uh, free accounts a- across different applications? And one of the examples he gave was like EOS Bet. They have their free accounts that they kind of abstract, so like it's not a real account on EOS. But then if another game, let's say EOS Dice or just Dice now, if they also created a similar solution, they wouldn't really be interoperable. You wouldn't be able to use that same account for both applications. The, the thing that's interesting to me about liquid accounts, the thing I'm excited about is if uh, there's a liquid account created on one application, that same liquid account could be used across all applications utilizing liquid accounts. Right, if you wanted to. Yeah. You didn't and the, the EOS, the EOS, what? You didn't get excited about it. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> right, if you wanted to, you can use these accounts across all kinds of applications. Yeah, and <laughs> was that better? <laughs> yeah, but honestly, that that's kind of why I'm excited for the ORID stuff. So uh, the reason I'm excited is because ORID makes it the most easy way possible to create a new account because it doesn't even make you manage your keys. They manage, uh, they do. So with their current infrastructure, they do run a different chain in the background. But w- whenever they implement liquid accounts, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how their stack's going to look, but it's going to kind of be like a hybrid. I think they're going to still do things their old way, but then they're going to have this other option also. I'm, I'm I, I guess I should have Icon on here sometime to talk about it themselves. Yeah, yeah <laughs> uh, really that, that would actually make the most sense because they're a great project, and I, I don't want to put words in their mouth. So I'll just stop talking about ORID, except saying that it's awesome, <laughs> and it lets you create cool, accounts cool ideas. with and, a social and, login. Right, they're cool accounts or they're cool ideas, and uh, and this is only the beginning of how powerful the ESIO permission system is. Right, um, we're gonna see. You can enable permissions for only certain applications on certain accounts with certain keys. And you know, like, we're going to have way more permissions than active and owner. And there's complex multi-sig setups you can do, uh, weighted things you can do. You'll be able to – I mean, I already have – this basically has solved the inheritance problem for me mm-hmm. that every other crypto has. And this is just using owner active keys. When you say inheritance, right? you're not talking about like yeah. programming inheritance. Are you talking no, about like if you I'm die? No, about – yeah, if you die, right? Uh, so the thing is, you want to give family access to your crypto assets if you die, right? But you don't want them to be able to steal them before you die. <laughs> and you might trust people, but maybe they're not as technically competent as you, for example. Or uh, or maybe whatever you pass on to them is stolen by somebody else, right? There are all kinds of reasons why the people you trust uh, why, why that those keys could still fall somehow into the wrong hands, like even if you trust them. My watch keeps dinging at me. Hang on. Um, so what I did is I set an owner active pair for uh, you know an, an account and a stake a bunch of EOS, and I hold the owner, and you give your beloved who's going to inherit your resources, uh, you give them the active key, 
And now that active key has the power to unstake your EOS and spend your EOS and move your EOS and whatever with your EOS. Mm -hmm. But if they unstake it, you get like a notice Mm -hmm. (laughs) where you can change that active key. So now if the person I gave my key to decides to rob me blind or it gets stolen and the hacker tries to rob me blind, I get notified and I have three days to change it and prevent my funds from being stolen. It's a solution, and I think there could be some things worked out here where it's a more robust solution, Mm -hmm. but right now it's a solution to the inheritance problem, which has required complex contracts on Ethereum, and in some cases has been impossible to do without trusting someone completely. I'm really excited about that. That's just number one. Using the implementation you just described with that active owner key, um, whenever the mainnet first launched, there, there was something in the original constitution, or maybe it got pulled out, I can't remember, with if your account is inactive for three consecutive years without touching it for a transaction, it would kind of recycle your account and kind of re- refund all of your uh, EOS back into the, I don't even know where it'd go. But you could <laughs> set, now, you could set so. a similar timer on an account that basically says, if it's inactive for this long, I'm definitely dead. Transfer my keys to this other person who I love very much, and they could have all my money because I'm probably dead or kidnapped um, for years. But they, they, there's also – I'm excited to see a tool actually built for this use case because, yeah, you as a developer could make something like that with your interactive permissions and stuff, or anyone probably could with the right tutorial. But with oracles and things like that, uh, you'd have to trust the database you're tapping into. But maybe you have like, um, I don't even know what the government database is that that has all the death certificates and stuff. But maybe something that uses an oracle that actually taps into a database like that. Or or if there's multiple databases, that way you're not just trusting one of them since they're all basically centralized on, on their own. I, I've thought about this before. It's funny that you brought it up because like there's not, as far as I know, a solution on any chain for this. Right. Now, we can do it, like I said, on EOS, mm-hmm. which is the, one of the things I love about EOS, the permission system. Guys, if you haven't looked into it, look into it more. It is amazing. It's going to be amazing. Uh, but anyway, yeah, Liquid Oracles, I'm very excited about. We actually had, I was talking about this before we talked about V versus Liquid. Um, there was an airdrop done at Tulip, the conference in San Francisco, and it didn't use VRAM. Uh, it used Liquid Oracles. That's uh, a fascinating use case. We won't get into the details. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was actually a cheaper airdrop than a VRAM airdrop, which was already significantly cheaper than a RAM airdrop. We're rapidly approaching the day where airdrops will be very feasible for everybody to do. Now, you did have to go claim, but oh mm-hmm. well. <laughs> I, I think one of the uh, most interesting use cases of uh, more so VRAM is so... We, it ties in with airdrops, though. So there were a lot of projects who airdropped the mainnet very, very early on from its launch. And every single one of those airdrops with their unclaimed tokens is taking up RAM on the uh-huh. mainnet for these smart contracts. They're just hogging up a ton of mainnet expensive RAM, and they might never get it back if those users don't claim their airdrops that probably happened June, July 2018. So I, I know of a project who are actually able to, or, or they're in the process of rolling back um, some of those inactive accounts that are basically taking up a piece of RAM and trying to roll it into VRAM for, for certain uh, types of users. So that's really cool. They're able to free up megabytes of RAM from mm-hmm. an airdrop that happened a year ago, and that's worth thousands of dollars now that they're able to free up in capital and maybe use that capital to pay for developers or, or anything that they, they need to for their project. So I think that's a cool use case also. 
Yeah, fascinating. And the uh, all these services that are coming out, they can be combined in really interesting ways. Mm -hmm. uh, like VRAM is great, but let's say you need speed. I don't know, you're working with some kind of trading app or something where even that half second VRAM, potential VRAM latency matters, or you just don't want your users to experience that. You can have things in RAM, and then if a user's inactive for a certain amount of time, evicted out the VRAM. So mm -hmm. only your active users are using your RAM and the inactive users are temporarily have their data cached in VRAM. Mm -hmm. So you have this balance. It's kind of like when you have a hard drive, when you have a computer, right? And you have a, a hard drive that's slow, but has a lot of space. And then you have an SSD hard drive. You know, you've mm -hmm. seen that setup, right? Yeah. One is really fast, but it doesn't have much space. And the other one's really like slow, but it's got a lot of space. And there's VRAM isn't really slow, but we're starting to tier our storage a little bit to get that perfect balance between efficiency with with uh, with with space and speed. Uh, the speed and efficiency sound very similar. I say capacity and speed, you right? Just, Convenience and capacity. You just described <laughs> my current situation. I'm always running out of hard drive space. I have an SSD on my laptop, but it's only like 250 gigs, constantly running out of space. And I have like the external hard drive that's not SSD. It's much slower, but it has basically terabytes of memory. Uh, so I see in the background there, you have a book on Rust, which reminds me yeah. of another new <laughs> it's, language called it's, it's one of those, uh, Move. It's one of those super like you know beginner books, because I've never done Rust before. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it's not a super beginner book, but uh, I'm excited to get into Rust, yeah. So what you, do you think of, uh, have you had a chance to look into the Libra documentation yet, or any of the, the Move programming language, which is based on Rust? Yeah, Move has some interesting protections, and some people are going back and forth on it, like with everything in Facebook. They say, why couldn't we just have a standard instead of a whole new language, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but Move has some uh, protections where uh, they call them resources. It took me a little while to think of that. Uh, a resource can't have more of it created and can't be destroyed. So you can kind of create assets without worrying about inflation bugs and things like that. And I haven't looked too deeply into it. I know it's it's quite limited right now, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it is interesting for what Facebook's trying to do. And uh, my my opinion, I've voiced it to uh, you know enthusiastic silence in response, is that uh, everyone is is making conclusions too quickly about I think Libra. So too. And uh, there's there's people who were formerly friends, and now one of them is saying this is the worst thing ever. It's a, it's a shit coin. It's going to ruin everything about crypto. And the other one is saying this is the white horse. This is the golden angel for for cryptocurrency. It is going to usher Bitcoin into a new utopian. You know, and those are they both have kind of valid points they're mm -hmm. making, but there's so much out there on Libra that's ambiguous. Like I I looked in. Go ahead. I, I think they did it on purpose. So I, I, re I, I read some different blogs of people who dug into the code pretty deep and realized how limited it was or incomplete it was. And it seems like they rushed to get this out, even though they've been working on it for over a year, because they knew what the regulators were going to do to respond. So why mm -hmm. build out a complete product that's ready to go for a test net or whatever, just to have it shut down by regulators? So they, they took it far enough, and now the regulators are banging down the hammer and it, it, it could potentially get shut down completely. I hope it doesn't, but they, they released it knowing that it wasn't complete because they know this is going to be an iterative, iterative process and there's going to be a lot of back and forth between regulators. But 
I think it is the Trojan horse. I, I think that these Libra tokens are going to be uh, transferable for other cryptocurrencies. So there's, what, what was the their wallet called? The Calibra wallet? Yeah, you know, there's another wallet. Which one? Unlibra. <laughs> uh, it came out, no, I'm serious. They came out with a website. I, uh, I don't know if we can pull it up here. Uh, but they say they're a wallet that's not related to Facebook in any way. Which um, and you can exchange your Libra for Bitcoin or things right on the wallet. Yeah. So people are looking past this as, yes, the Calibra wallet is a custodial wallet, just like a Coinbase wallet that uh, Facebook or Libra will essentially have some control over. It abstracts the keys, but it also has good features like uh, stolen fund recovery or like lost account recovery, things like that, because they are um, a custodial wallet. But the fact that they're opening it up for anyone to have a non-custodial wallet, like the un, what'd you call it? The unlibra or uncalibra? Yeah, check this out. I shared my screen. I don't know if you see it. I don't. Oh, well, I'm going to go try to share it again. Okay, here we go. Uh, see it now? Yeah. Unlibra, the only Libra wallet you will ever need. Now, this is very rudimentary, uh, but it, I like it, actually. It's clean. It's a mm -hmm. break free from Libra. <laughs> now, I mean, maybe this isn't uh, exactly what I thought it was. This looks like exchange your Libra for real cryptocurrencies. <laughs> uh, but the point is, uh, there's nothing stopping people from making, I don't know what Get Started does, yeah. There's, there's nothing stopping people from making other wallets, you know, besides Calibra. Yeah, so... I think anyone who's jumping the gun and saying it's terrible is doing exactly that. They're jumping the gun. I, I might think it's terrible too down the line, but right now I, I'm wide open to, to listening. I, I think it's great that there will be a hundred big companies right now. There's like 20 that are, are planning to run nodes and be part of this because all of those companies in the Libra association, they basically, they pay like $10 million to get in, but then they are allowed to get 1% of the profits from um, the underlying assets. So right now it's a basket of like what, euros, uh, I forget all the uh, dollars and whatever else, whatever yeah. regular old school currencies they are. That's what's backing the Libra token. But even just those fiat assets themselves are gaining like a 6% interest a, a year because they're, they're, they're held in bonds. So all of that profit... Uh, I don't know what they're going to do from the profit because I think publicly they'll be shamed if they just pocket it all. I think I don't know if they could do something like voice. I don't know how regu regulation will ever allow profits to be shared in any way. But yeah. I, I think that because there is profit to be had with the underlying assets, it's going to start as fiat and hopefully over like a long time frame, it could start bringing in. Uh, more volatile assets, maybe some gold, maybe some Bitcoin. So I, I think this is their Trojan horses. They're like, yeah, it's just fiat. It's just like the old stuff. It's just a mixed bag. It's still got dollars in there. Check it out. But then over time, as it grows and it hits that mass mass adoption, then they could start saying, okay, um, let's say I... I mean, they'll, they'll have to agree on it, but like, I think gold would be one of the first ones and Bitcoin would be one of the first ones. And what if maybe even the, the node operators themselves want to put some of their own equity into this basket, just small amounts, and then the whole Libra network benefits from the upside of all of these individual companies growing also because then their equity values go up. I, I think it's a huge Trojan horse. I'm excited to see what happens, but yet I do know that it's it, we're a long ways off. I don't think... Uh, their launch date for 2020 is reasonable. I think this is going to be a long regulatory battle. 
And that's mm-hmm. another thing I'm excited about is they have the money and the power to kind of go head to head with some of these big governments and just get an answer. Like the, the answer might be unfavorable, but let's just get an answer. This gray, yeah. this gray area we've been in is like purgatory. Well, yeah. I mean, what is it? Binance has said no more U.S. citizens. Bancor, Bancor. now has said you had no more U.S. citizens. And it's not their fault. It's the fact that there's just no regulatory clarity in the United States over this. And it's just, will the SEC come after us? And the United States' financial regulatory power extends to the entire world. Mm-hmm. If you irritate them, it doesn't matter if you're hiding somewhere. Uh, somehow they'll get you. But anyway, yeah, so Libra, I was I was reading through the technical docs, which there's a lot, actually, of uh, technical documentation. And I had two distinct impressions. The first one is, wow, these, these people actually do know a lot of what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know more of the crypto scene than maybe we thought. Uh, but also coupled with, boy, a lot of the problems that they kind of say they will solve in the future are the same things that Ethereum is dealing with. You know, it's just the same issues and there's no guaranteed solution there. So technologically, as far as regulation goes, as far as economics, uh, as far as there's just so many questions that I think that we need to keep our options open and, you know, thinking wise and consider both outcomes. Let's speculate on something. I might even say this with Rob on everything. Yes. So this might be the Uh, second time people hear it. I want to see block one get a seat at the table. Ten million dollars. What's that to them? I think they meet all the other criteria about being an industry leader in something. I think them getting a seat at the table and running a node would be huge. And they would have the ear of all of the other Libra Association companies. Mm-hmm. How do you think the EOS community would take that? I, I think uh, it, it, this needs to not be like religious warfare here. Every, yeah. like, as much as you want to say that Libra is centralized, it's still a 26 times more decentralized with 26 parties involved right now than any one organization today uh, of, of that group. So mass, it, Libra is more decentralized than Facebook. It's more decentralized than Spotify, than Uber, because they're all in, in this association together. So decentralization is not black and white. There, there's many different areas of gray. And to say that this whole Libra thing is completely centralized is stupid, because it's more decentralized than most of today's businesses and, and currencies, but obviously it's miles away from as decentralized as something like Bitcoin is. But it's still oh, yeah. an, it's an improvement. But it's an improvement to the end goal. We all have the same end goal. I think people that say it's centralized and then Facebook will control it haven't looked at the government's plans at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it It's really hard to see Facebook playing this in a way where they end up being the sole controllers of the currency mm-hmm. with their announced plans. All, I mean, what, what would all those other companies join if they were just going to like be bowing to Facebook, mm-hmm. you know, as far as governance goes. And so another Trojan horse here is like all of these big companies already run giant data centers just for their own stuff. Once they start running a node on like a decentralized network, like they get the hang of it, they're going to have staff on hand who understand these distributed networks and how they could operate nodes in them. So then that's kind of getting their feet wet for running nodes maybe on other networks like on EOSIO 
not necessarily the main net, maybe the main net. But if we ever want these giant companies to even consider running nodes on other networks, this is a nice little foot in the door. So let's be let's be forward thinking about that. And that's not outside of the realm of possibility. I don't think there's ever going to be just one blockchain that rules them all. I think there's going to be thousands of them and they're all going to interoperate. There's nothing that's going to stop EOS IO chains from interoperating with uh, the, the main Libra chain. Dan's even said like he would like to try to put that in a smart con like the Libra stuff in a smart contract on EOS. I mean, just him speaking out, thinking out loud, but like we got to think long term here. And I, I think things are going to play out a lot differently over the next 10 years than a lot of people uh, expect them to. They um, always do. I mean, whenever you make a prediction about the future, the far future, the only thing you can really be sure about is that you're wrong. <laughs> like that, that's, that's proven true again and again and again for almost everyone. Uh, we don't know what the future holds. I'm excited about it. I think that we need to get past a little bit of tribalism, like you said. Uh, in fact, I think Benny, our CEO at Liquid Apps, has an article coming out uh, about getting past tribalism as well. It's it's a thought that a lot of people are having uh, because we're at each other's throats here. Mm -hmm. And we need to be a, a more unified front. Um, that doesn't mean we need to bow to King Facebook, though, yeah. either. So balanced view, balanced view. I, I, I think... We've given Libra a lot of attention here. I think we need to move yeah, on to a couple know, other topics. There's already been plenty of attention given to Libra in the past, past bit. So let's get back into EOSIO. We have so much cool stuff, not, not only at everything EOS and DAP Network, uh, but EOSIO Labs. So they've been dropped, like leading up to B1 June, they dropped so much new code. And then at mm -hmm. B1 June, they dropped EOSIO 2, EOS VM, WebAuthn. Uh, the iOS and Chrome Authenticator are just awesome. What out of all of the EOSIO Lab stuff that's come out are you excited to start playing with whenever you get a chance? All of it, all of it. I mean, EOSVM has put out a developer preview, and I, I haven't had time to look at it. I need to look at it. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the things that'll enable not just the scaling, uh, the scaling system, but it's it's the first piece to IBC. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that it's not that it is IBC, but it lays some of the groundwork for IBC. And I'm excited about checking that out. And uh, the DAP, the next course actually, the uh, Advanced EOS Development course that's coming out in July August, will have sections on the Universal Authenticator Library, the Universal Authenticator Library. That's a mouthful, uh, and potentially the iOS and uh, the Swift and Android SDK. Uh, we'll be checking those things out and. Who knows? Maybe there will be other things out as well that EOSIO Labs has dropped that we'll be able to include. I'm excited about trying them out, and I hope everybody else out there is too. Me too. I, I think for me, it's the authenticator. So I installed the Laomao version of the on the App Store. It, it's mm -hmm. it's amazing that you could sign transactions th through your web browser without even like touching the wallet app. It's just running in the background. I, I think that's going to be yeah. a game changer for people. Um, and then the web and the wallet the wallet doesn't even have access yeah. to you know like the access is very segregated so uh, it's it's a very secure setup I kind of want to see what happens with the Yubi keys too I, I think there's more to that but we'll see um, there's so much stuff uh, I'm excited about it all but we're running out of time we both have calls here coming up so is there anything else you want to want to talk to people about when are you going to come back on everything EOS as the courses come to more completion I'm sure you'll see me. Again, maybe we'll release a couple of those videos, those one-off videos on RID or something uh, for free on the channel. And uh, and then we'll come and chat about the latest. Yeah, it's been good to be on. I uh, it, it's, You get a little star for 
for social interaction. You know, we're dealing in our <laughs> content creator development caves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, it's been great to chat with you, Zach. You too, man. I'm excited. Uh, there's one thing I want to add is if you are, uh, we're going to start adding surveys into the developer courses so that if you're taking the developer courses and you're interested in working on EOSIO projects, we want to connect you with the projects themselves. So that's kind of our, our next phase. Also, once Pete gets the next uh, level of the next series of developer courses out, they're all going to include surveys at the beginning and it's going to let us know if you're interested in this. And then if you're a project and you're interested in, in sourcing developers, reach out to us also. You could reach out to me at Zach at everythingios.io uh, or, or on Twitter, Telegram, anywhere you can find me. I'm easy to find. But until next time, I'm Zach Gall. I'm Peter Kay. And this is Everything EOS. Go, Go EOS! EOS. Ha, 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 ha.